Welcome to 200 a Day, a podcast where we explore the 70s television detective show The Rockford Files, but every so often venture into the 90s to talk about the the TV movies of the same continuity. Yes. So, yes, we uh occasionally try to make a venture into the 90s to talk about these these movies starring many or most of the returning cast of The Rockford Files. And uh which one are we talking about this time, Epi? Uh, well, this time we are talking about A Blessing in Disguise. This one came out, I think, was it 95? Yes. yes. May of 95. Oh, 95. <laughs> I, am, uh, I have a certain melancholy when it comes to these uh, because my nostalgia for the 90s is not as sweet as my nostalgia for the 70s. <laughs> uh, not only because the... Actors that we know and love clearly are 20 years older than they were before, but also the world itself is 20 years older, and uh, it reminds me of my own mortality. (laughs) (laughs) And that's what we're in for on this episode of 200 Mm -hmm. a Day. It's a little weird because I obviously was, you know, not around in the 70s. Maybe not obviously, but I I was not around in the 70s. Uh, And then... The mid-90s was not a time that I was paying attention to the world around me. Right. So seeing this this movie in particular, uh, I mentioned before we started recording, has lots of references to things that I didn't realize were references because I wasn't aware of pop culture in 1995. Yeah. Um, so you're going to have to help me out with some of those as we go. Uh, hopefully. Um, we have no opening mo- montage I don't know how we start an episode without an opening montage. We can we can go ahead and ease on in uh, with <laughs> the, uh, the the salient details here. So this was a uh, Stephen Cannell script. So we're getting back to OG uh, Rockford storytelling, mm-hmm. and I think we can kind of see that not only in the tenor of of the episode, but also how it felt. At least it felt to me, and let let me know what you think, a little bit like a concept for an hour-long show that ended up getting stretched out for a two-hour movie. Yeah, I think... uh, Okay, so we here at 200 a Day love every episode of The Rockford Files. (laughs) Right. Uh, But this one, uh, it does feel a little padded. It does feel like they, they, they nudge some things out. But there's also... There's a couple masters at work here right like right yeah some of what they're doing is here's a mystery or whatnot that rockford has to engage with but also we need to do these things because it's been a while since we've chatted with our fans and we just want to mm-hmm. like say hey we're still at it and then we also have to do these things because it has been a while and we have to say we now live in the 90s mm-hmm. and uh instead of all of that coming together into a tight hour long episode, they had the room to do it in an hour and a half. So it's not quite as tight as some of the better examples from the uh, earlier seasons, right? Mm -hmm. Like the, I guess more is not necessarily a better thing (laughs) uh, uh, without, I don't want to poo poo this episode too much because I had fun. I enjoyed it quite a bit, but uh, when it comes to actually talking about how it goes together, I think the fact that they had all this room, didn't help them right it's there's kind of a con at least for me there was kind of a contrast between 
the performances, which I think were great across the board, um, mm-hmm. and the pace and kind of storytelling pieces that yeah. were a little lax in that way you described. So, yeah, but we'll, and so because this is a, uh, for a to- two hour slot movie, so it was about an hour and, an hour half, and a half running time. Yeah, somewhere in there. Uh, we are going to take our whole episode to do our, our walkthrough of the show, uh, but also we'll be, you know, expanding out on our thoughts as we hit them, as opposed to taking our discrete second half. So strap in. Yeah, get out your notebooks now. This one uh, was directed by Jeno Zwark, uh, who we last saw in uh, So Help Me God. He was the oh. director of that standout 70s episode, uh, as well as Two into 556 Won't Go, which is way back in our archives. Yeah. An experienced hand on the wheel. Uh, obviously, he had a ton of other TV credits. He was working between the original and the uh, network movies, um, including the uh standout directorial credits of jaws 2 and the supergirl movie oh yeah and uh somewhere in time which i probably mentioned last time it's a <laughs> time travel show that uh starring chris reeve that i enjoyed quite a bit they're not show i should say movie and this is one of the one of the things about these movies that was a big feature i think for the people making them was that they they basically got the band back together on the production mm-hmm. side so like they had people who had gone on in their careers from the role that they had shooting the Rockford Files coming back to their old roles that they hadn't been in for decades yeah. so that they could be crew on it. Uh, in the 30 years of the Rockford Files uh, right up for this one, it mentions a guy who, who, who was like a cinematographer or a director of photography or something mm-hmm. who came back and served as the second assistant director for this movie like because it was all of his buddies and that was what he did in the, in the 70s that's wonderful i i i'm really curious about uh what that experience is like mm-hmm. i am often uh jealous of collective creative endeavors <laughs> and to then go on advance your career and then decide to go back to your previous position just for the sake of playing in the same playground that you did when you were 20 years younger uh, mm-hmm. is a pretty interesting. Uh, uh, yeah. I, I, I'm curious about that. 200 a day is supported by all of our listeners, but especially our patrons at patreoncom slash 200 a day. Patrons get to add to the 200 a day Rockford files files, help us pick which episodes to cover and more. Each episode, we extend a special thanks to our gumshoe-level patrons. This time, we say thank you to Jim Crocker. In addition to supporting the show, he also sells our games at cons east of the Mississippi on behalf of Indie Press Revolution. Follow along on Twitter at IPR Tweets. Shane Leveland. If you play games online, you should check out his free dice-rolling app Roll For Your Party at rollforyour.party. Mike Gillis, host of the Radio vs. the Martians podcast, the McLaughlin Group for Nerds. They remain at RadioVersusTheMartians.com. Kevin Lovecraft, part of the Wednesday Evening Podcast All-Stars Actual Play Podcast, found at MisdirectedMark.com. Lowell Francis, with his award-winning gaming blog at AgeOfRavens.blogspot.com. Dylan Winslow, Dale Norwood, Bill Anderson, Chris, and Dave P. And finally, big thanks to Victor DeSanto and to Richard Haddam, who you can find on Twitter at Richard Haddam. Check out Patreon.com slash 200 today and see if you want to be our newest gumshoe. But uh, yeah, as you say, with these movies, there is no opening montage. We do get an answering machine message 
which is mm-hmm. appreciated. And I believe this is the last one of those. They abandoned that gimmick for the later movies uh, from here on out. <laughs> they are they're entering the world of beepers. <laughs> also, what I forgot since last we saw one of these movies is the theme. Mm-hmm. The synth theme. <laughs> which I think we might have mentioned last time, but thank you for doing a synth version of this <laughs> and not like attempting a hip hop or something that would just embarrass you. Right. Uh, I, I quite enjoyed it. It was great. It's good. And like the whole score has that like synthy yeah. version of like the harmonica, but it's a synth instead of an, of what a harmonica sting would have been in a seventies yeah. episode is like a synth <laughs> sting in this one. Yeah, it's fun. I also, I really liked how this one started with the helicopter kind of shots of LA yeah. and, and various landmarks uh, just while the credits were playing, but it was a nice kind of establishing montage uh, that got me excited to see Jim as he has stayed in LA. As we know from the first yes. movie, he still loves LA. He's still there. Despite the uh, wildfires <laughs> and earthquakes and rioting. And then we start off our movie proper straight in Jim's expanded refurnished trailer Yes. Apparently he is getting cable installed for the first time. Yes. And yeah, this is, you know, giving us our little establishing bit of our older Jim Rockford. I think I know who his cable guy is. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think his cable guy is Scully from Brooklyn Nine-Nine. Hmm. Uh, if you don't watch Brooklyn Nine-Nine, you should watch Brooklyn Nine-Nine. <laughs> I have been uh, scolded. But yeah, but he is he is installing Jim's cable and we have business about how old his TV is. It ought to yeah. be in the Smithsonian. Um, Jim is a little aggravated about how long it's taken for them to, <laughs> you know, get out there and install it and everything. And as soon as it turns on, uh, we hear the audio. <laughs> the audio is of some kind of uh, gasping and moaning and it's porn of some sort. They're kind of talking about it, like talking yeah. about what they're actually watching. We don't get kind of the expected old man prudishness, maybe of Jim, like wanting to change it or something. Right. Uh, which is kind of in keeping, I think with, uh, yeah. with Jim, this guy should sell some vitamin supplements. Like, <laughs> <laughs> uh, but once the cable guy leaves, it just transitions into other things. So I was yeah. a little unclear about whether, I mean, it doesn't matter. Yeah. Yeah. No, I had the same thought. I was like, it's lovely that it did. Mm-hmm. Like we didn't want porn going on in the background the whole time. And, and what it transitioned into is beautiful. I mean, it gets gets our story going, but... But there's no hint that the channel got changed. Uh, so it just seems like we've interrupted your porn broadca- <laughs> broadcast to bring you this. Exactly. Which, uh, But yes, he just lets it play while he goes to the fridge. Um, there's a little gimmick here where he's bending over <laughs> at the fridge and we hear Angel's voice shouting, let me in. Yeah, he's specific. He's like, Angel, the door's open. You can come in or whatever. Yeah. Like, But he mentions him by name and we hear the voice and I... I'm like, okay, that's Angel. Mm -hmm. That's great. And then Angel's voice goes on and we realize that he's not there. He is, in fact, on the TV and he is preaching up a storm. (laughs) You know, let the angel into your life. (laughs) So A Blessing in Disguise is the title. The bulk of this movie is concerned slash driven by Angel has uh, somehow become this televangelist preacher. It's kind of a send up of the, you know, TV prayer. Yeah kind of thing i did not note all of the things that he says they are all good yeah yeah a lot of them are puns on his name right because he's angel so 
let me in, let the angel in, the Lord's angels come, that kind of stuff. Uh, really, this is the bulk of the joy of the episode is seeing Angel yeah. go deep on this character. What, what's great about this is that for a uh, long time, Rockford viewers. All of this sounds like stuff that Angel could just say right off the top of his head, right? Like this is unscripted Angel playing a character. Mm -hmm. I I just kind of, I really enjoyed that. Like he's, he is saying nonsense in a way that sounds profound. (laughs) And he's so in his element here. This is a job that Angel was born for. And uh, it's almost a shame what happens with it. (laughs) (laughs) Jim, of course, is dumbstruck to see angel preaching on his tv we see jim getting kind of mad kind of upset as he's watching and you think it's like angel what are you you know it's it's about whatever angel's yeah. doing because clearly he's this is some kind of scam right we all yeah. know this <laughs> it's angel. that's the table stakes of this of this movie this must be some kind of scam but then he bursts out with the fact that it's not just that it's angel on tv he's wearing jim's sport coat yeah and this is the motivating factor for jim rockford <laughs> he wants his coat back and so while angel is still uh preaching into the camera saying you are my special angel uh jim is calling the temple of holy light uh yes and he wants to talk to angel and he goes through multiple rounds of no he's not a paying parishioner or no he's not buying whatever yes you'll hold and responding to things that angel's saying on the television because angel is trying to sell you a pamphlet mm-hmm. that tells the story of his conversion and that's one of the selling points of the pamphlet is that it's short <laughs> and rockford is like it would have to be <laughs> we start off at the temple of holy light with a gathering of picketers and and picket signs and people yelling and we quickly learn that they're organizing to go somewhere else to do a boycott so they're not picketing the the temple they are the parishioners uh the flock the guys at the gate won't let jim park in that parking lot because he's not associated with the church (laughs) one of many indignities that our friend jim is going to suffer yes we go inside and we get our, you know, nice, solid look at what Angel is up to, I think. A, there's a woman talking to a bunch of people who are on this little stage. Someone's in a wheelchair. Someone has bandages. Someone has, like, the dark eyeglasses of the blind. Um, so these are, you know, people who are suffering ills of some kind. And a woman is explaining to them that uh, the Reverend Angel, he's going to read their auras. And then based on their aura he'll tell them which one he can provide a miracle for the show, essentially, for when they're on camera. So we then watch as Angel comes on out uh, in full preacher mode. In my notes, I say that he flim flams about their auras. <laughs> yes. If you're going to watch this episode, you watch it and then go back and, and make an Angel super cut because mm-hmm. uh, he's so good. But yeah, so he's looking at, you know, people's auras saying this one's this one's shimmery. This one's whatever. These people like the guy in the wheelchair, he's lost his legs. He wants his legs back. There's a woman who's pretty deaf. She wants to hear. Um, And when he comes to the last person in line, he lowers the like hat in front of his face. (laughs) And it is Jim Rockford in a big bulky coat who disguised himself amongst these other (laughs) uh, these other seekers after after a miracle. And all he wants is his sport coat back. And we get the (laughs) just the perfect angel. Hi, Jimmy. (laughs) Yeah, no, this this one I did write down because. The shift in his face mm-hmm. from being on top of the world. Here he is, uh, the authority in the room, 
complete masterful control. Everyone's paying attention to him and following his orders. And then he sees Jim's face. It doesn't matter. We've gotten nothing about anything that Jim has over him or anything like that. All we know is that Jim has shown up at his church and old hurt angel (laughs) comes flying through. This sort of cowering, terrified, hi, Jimmy. (laughs) What's going to happen? And he is right to be scared. Uh, As Jim says, in case you can't see his aura, it's red hot and shaped like a fist. And he chases Angel, (laughs) wanting his sport coat back. Uh, So he kind of collars him in this entry area. Angel explains that the black and white jacket that he wore for court was too stroby for TV. (laughs) So that's why he borrowed. Jim says, no, why you stole, let's use the right word, Jim's (laughs) coat. Jim wants to know what, how did this all happen? Last time he saw Angel, he was selling hot VCRs out of a shopping cart. And we all remember that Mm -hmm. from I I Still Love L.A. Angel kind of elides any explanation of how he got to where he got, but he is very excited about it because this new life that he's leading, it's all (laughs) tax-free. Yes, he he woke up one day and he heard he heard the message of the Lord. He was talking to him because his name was Angel. <laughs> this moment is where we find out why Evelyn Martin has been called Angel this entire time. <laughs> As Jim says, your name is Evelyn. We call you Angel because you were always on your knees in prison, praying not to get killed by the hard cases. Chef <laughs> <sighs> kiss. Angel, uh, you know, does not want to be in this conversation anymore. He calls for his... Uh, angels of the Lord, uh, his bodyguards, to help this sinner on his way. And they drag him out of the church. One of these thugs, uh, gorillas, if you will. His name is Zach, and Jim recognizes him because they did time together. (laughs) So, yes, you know, clearly Angel has called on his uh, old, old connections for these bodyguards. We cut to a mob of these picketers pushing a woman around, uh, yelling at her, calling her a slut, and uh, angry about her satanic message. There's one kind of main guy who's like the mouthpiece of this. Yeah. Like all Hollywood people are the same. It's liberal sewage that they're spewing over (laughs) their children. As he's wont to do, Jim comes to the defense of this uh, woman who's being uh, harassed and messed with. He holds the the guy back from pushing her around more, tries to find out what's going on. It's all chaotic. The crowd starts throwing fruit at them, I think. Yeah. Maybe they brought some because they were going to go to a protest right. or something. But I mean, yeah. they all have the signs, right? So this is the crowd that was going yeah. to go like picket somewhere. I do want to say something very specific about this crowd. Mm-hmm. I want to point out one individual in this crowd who is wearing a black windbreaker with a purple and a teal stripe on it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That is the 90s. <laughs> As we get further and further from the 90s, uh, the rosy glasses of nostalgia will make us think about it as a cool time where (laughs) Trent Reznor rose to power and all that. No. No. (laughs) The 90s is this windbreaker. (laughs) Like when I saw that, I was transported back. (laughs) Like the opening of the Ark of the Covenant. My body melted away. (laughs) The way it fits him. Is so 90s. Like, all of it. All of it. All right. Um, As Jim hustles her away, she does take a picture of the main guy who was harassing her. So she has, like, a portable point-and-shoot camera, which is unremarkable to us uh, today, of course. I feel like this is supposed to be a bigger deal in this, like, that she has it or that 
she takes pictures of things. Mm-hmm. There's a callback to this at the very end of the movie. Yeah. And by the time that happens, I'd forgotten that she like carries a camera around. Right. But I, I wonder if the fact that she had one was supposed to be memorable. Yeah. Because like it wasn't a disposable camera. It, it was like no. a Polaroid kind of. Yeah, it's pre-digital camera. Right. It didn't look fancy. This is not a day and age when everybody would be carrying a camera. Mm. So that's important. And it is something that you'd need to point out that a character had a camera if you wanted that character to use a camera later. Uh, you know, it's the old rule of threes, right? Like, yeah. you would need one more moment <laughs> to just remind us, since this is the very beginning of a what would be a two-hour mm. sitting, uh, and, and it comes up again at almost the very end. But yes, Jim gets her into the car. They drive away uh, as the firebird is pelted with fruit. And we go into our next sequence where uh, she starts talking to Jim. Uh, we learn that this is Laura Sudine, the actress, Laura Sudine. Um, yes. She talks very quickly and she has lots of fills, just like yeah. things that she says and references to like actors and places and stuff like that. I got lost in a lot of that and kind of started tuning it out to make sure I right. was getting kind of the plot relevant stuff. So I don't know if I missed anything that was supposed to be a joke uh, in, in all of this. Because for the first, I'd say, six-sevenths to seven-eighths of this movie, I found this character very difficult to engage with. (laughs) (laughs) She is a bit of an actress stereotype, Mm -hmm. uh, especially from that era. This was, I I guess, this is my second viewing of this. I had not remembered (laughs) that I'd seen it before until it started up. Uh, So I think I had a more favorable read of her because I do know her art. One of the things that I liked this viewing about her is that, so she's clearly self-absorbed, which will be a running gag as she now is tagging along (laughs) with Rockford, who she doesn't know at all. Just oversharing everything about her life and her decisions. Uh, But in that process, while she's definitely supposed to be this stereotype and supposed to come off as a little shallow, we end up with like these random moments of vulnerability Mm -hmm. where she just kind of explains her anxieties every so often. And uh, I did like that about the character. We at least get to see her as as a as a full being rather than just a chatterbox. Yeah, she does she does develop over the course of the movie, for sure. Yeah, but I I was more annoyed than not uh for for a lot of her her <laughs> performance. Um she is played by Renee O'Connor who uh, yes. would go on uh pretty much immediately from here to be Gabrielle in uh Xena Warrior Princess. So, um that's where folks would know her from. So they go to a cafe of some kind. Uh, Rockford is getting cups of coffee and uh, croissants. She she knows what her diet should look like, but she can have her guard down right now. So this is what she wants. The deal is she is she has a role in a movie that's coming out called Little Ezekiel. This is what the Reverend Martin uh, is boycotting, uh, sending sending the parishioners to go boycott. Because it is apparently blasphemous. Um, yes. But no one, none of them have seen it yet. And so she was there because she wanted to talk to uh, Angel and try to explain what the movie was about to him so that he would call off the boycott. She wants to make that happen because this harassment is ruining her career. She doesn't want to be the person who is boycotted, you know, yeah. because of this movie. <laughs> she starts telling Jim the plot of the movie uh, 
there's something about the miracle of the bowling balls. Uh, but then she interrupts herself because there's a juice commercial that she's in that comes on the TV that's on in the place. <laughs> and she starts analyzing herself in the commercial. Yeah. I look terrible. I didn't play that right. That was a great swimsuit, but they wouldn't let me buy it from wardrobe. Like, Yeah. <laughs> and then kind of changing on a dime, uh, she has also been getting death threats in the mail and she has them and shows them to Jim. And oh, what's this? A review from the play that I was in? <laughs> <laughs> to be fair, I keep all of my reviews and death threats <laughs> in the same place. They just happen to be the Internet. <laughs> Um, we, we get that running bit about her best quality coming up through this. Like she keeps on referring to different things as her best quality. Yeah. Jim finally kind of stops her by saying that she's self-involved. She should take this to the police, you know, these threats and everything and the harassment. She says that her agents don't want her to because that'll become the story and not the movie. Oh yeah. She's got great agents. They're great. They're lovely. (laughs) (laughs) Jim mentions that he has a client meeting. And so she finally asks him what he does. He's a PI. She heard of some other actress who had a bodyguard or something. So she wants to hire him for protection. Um, He does not seem excited about this. No, no, it doesn't seem like the kind of job that Jim wants. And also, I think it's very telling of her character that she's not seeking a bodyguard for protection. She's seeking a bodyguard because that's what actresses get. Uh, we end this scene with her uh, pushing her croissant away. She does not eat it. She's not hungry, as it turns out. As as Jim's bookkeeper, <laughs> uh, I, I wrote that down. I assumed he paid for all of this, but I don't know how much. As we'll find out, uh, this is a bookkeeper's nightmare. Uh, because we, I have no idea if he ever got paid or hired <laughs> or anything in this episode. Out on the street, she says that I'll see if I can get the studio to pay for you. But if not, I can afford you. I made a quarter of a million dollars. Uh, we cut from there to the Firebird getting trashed. Oh, no. Such it's so sad. <laughs> There's the beating in the windshield with a baseball bat. They're graffitiing Satan on the side. A, a group of the picketers have apparently tracked them down and started trashing his car. He, uh, you know, goes in to try and fight them off. Uh, but there's like five of them and they quickly get the upper hand. Laura Sue starts beating them with her purse to try and help, but it's not looking good, uh, until a cop car with its lights on comes around the corner. Uh, and then the guys run off. And so we end that bit with, uh, Jim saying that she has another quality that's guts. Another best quality. This is a, a kind of a nice running gag that they'll do uh, throughout this episode where uh, we get to define her by her best qualities. Jim saw uh, a woman being assaulted by a crowd and did what Jim right. would do, which is step in and take her to safety and offer her some comfort. He's about done with that. And she comes and rescues him. And this is the moment uh, where we're like, oh, yeah. And it gives that little seed of like character motivation for Jim, I think. Yeah. Because this is one of those very much where Jim Rockford doesn't really want to be involved, but every step of the way he gets more involved and it seems like the right decision at the time. <laughs> right. Yeah. He, get, he gets involved because nobody else involved has her best right. interests mm-hmm. in mind. He says that she could, she should go somewhere that, that no one will know where, you know, where to find her for the night. And he will press her case with Angel. So we go to 
Jim's staking out a very fancy house uh, and Angel being chauffeured in and a fancy car. Jim slips in through the automatic gate as it closes. And then we go to Angel giving these like instructions to his bodyguard. The main guy, Zach, says like, sure, whatever you say, boss. Angel does not want to be called boss. Perhaps your your holiness <laughs> or <laughs> your eminence. But I think this is where we see that these guys are are are, are gorillas, right? Yeah. They're not yeah. part of this weird evangelical thing going on. They're not true believers. They know who Angel is. Yeah. Despite their efforts, Jim has managed to sneak into the house and he collars Angel, just comes out of like nowhere and grabs him by the collar. Now that Angel's protesters have trashed the Firebird, it's not just about his coat. Uh, Jim is Jim yeah. is mad. Angel plays it off, says he'll fix it, makes some crack about like Jim shouldn't be so concerned with material things and he should do the work to, to cleanse his spirit. And Jim says that if, if Laura Sue is threatened again, He'll come back and cleanse Angel's spirit with a can of mace. Um, this is while Angel is leading him upstairs through this very nice house. It's totally all kitted oh, out yeah. with every fancy piece of ephemera you can imagine. And as they go into the walk-in closet upstairs, this is not just his coat. There's a whole Rockford section. <laughs> There's a leather jacket that he, that had disappeared. There are multiple bags that uh, are just sitting around that were originally Rockford's. Presumably with like surveillance equipment or something in it. Like it, it just, yeah. But seeing it all together, it's like Angel been stealing my stuff for years. Which, you know, makes sense. Yeah. Uh, so this whole sequence, uh, it takes up a pretty good amount of screen time. And it's mostly it's mostly the banter between them and the threats from Jim yeah. and Angel trying to. He alternates between full like, you know, I saw the light of the Lord and now I must preach to my congregation. And then he switches from that to you know oh this is a really good deal jimmy right like yeah he just keeps going back and forth <laughs> in classic angel fashion like this is so a fun thing about their dynamic is <laughs> if i may <laughs> you you may rockford came in for his jacket but he's gone so much further for a jacket and part of that i think is because the jacket is the excuse right so that rockford rockford can save angel from himself and save the world from angel like that's <laughs> That's his job. Mm -hmm. That's what he tries to do. Watching Rockford try to nail Angel down in a debate or conversation or whatever, and watching Angel just flip through his different personas right. and, and all, it's it's beautiful. I love watching that. When I was saying before, it felt like some stuff was padded. This is not, this doesn't feel like padding to me. This You, you want to see these mm -hmm. two. So here you go. This is what you came for. Yeah. A Rockford movie with Angel in it. This yeah. is why you're here. <laughs> yes. Um, plot wise, it's not like a lot happens. It, right. It's mostly right. the sequence of, of seeing them do their thing, which is great. Um, throughout this sequence, Jim has this kind of monologue about Angel's terrible ethics. Like ever since I've known you, you've you've done bad things for bad reasons uh, and wants to know what the scam is. What is your deal here? Angel finally says that, you know, he was called to one of these sermons given by the Reverend Star, and he got up on stage and he, he was possessed by the spirit of the Lord and he started talking in tongues. <laughs> that was his revelation. And he was speaking in perfect Aramaic. Uh, <laughs> the Reverend Star was so impressed with this, they made him a yeah. deacon. And when Star died, 
Angel took over. Uh, at least that's what he makes it sound like. But that's the <laughs> that's the story. Yeah, he ended up just getting just getting sucked in, and now this is what he does. Uh, Jim still has him kind of trapped. Yeah, uh, he does kind of finalize this by offering to make Jim a deacon himself. <laughs> To like let him let him out let him go there's this laundry list of benefits that come with that including uh there's use of the choir on your birthday <laughs> that is my uh favorite also during this uh there's talk about jimmy's bad knee oh yeah yeah i can heal i can heal your knee yeah <laughs> but uh angel has a as a time commitment here he has a point counterpoint uh with the people who made this movie that he's protesting yeah and Jim's like, well, I'll go with you because uh, he wants to talk to these filmmakers. And he's worried about Laura Sue. Once Angel is kind of released from Jim's looming physical imprisonment uh, and they head down the stairs, he strips Jim of the deaconship that he just offered him because usually <laughs> those cost 10000 <laughs> We go to this point counterpoint. Okay, so I did not realize that this was a real thing that they've incorporated into the movie, (laughs) but they are doing this point counterpoint on the Morton Downey Jr. show. Right. So Morton Downey Jr. Uh, I remember hating him. (laughs) I literally did not know who this was, like that this was a person that was not part of a fictitious movie. So. Elucidate me. So he's, I think maybe the, first of the like jerry springer or you know the bring people out put all their trash on display Mm -hmm. talk show folks i think he had like largely conservative politics uh you know what i actually don't know much about him so i shouldn't (laughs) but this is this is a thing this is a this is a a show that existed so so there was a show called downey in 1994 1995 and then there was the morton downey jr show in the 80s he was definitely like one of these people that that tried to maintain relevance Mm -hmm. uh by inventing things like invented uh a nazi skinhead attack that he saw that that he admitted later that he didn't uh that didn't happen i feel like like he's somewhat responsible for where we <laughs> sure. are now as a culture mm-hmm. <laughs> i I, re- I do remember him from back in the day and just not liking him one bit so they're on the show i think they call it the morton downey jr show in the movie yeah its, it's role in this movie is clearly to be a site for creating conflict between the movie people and uh angels protesters yeah he he's playing himself but he's also uh parodying himself in this he's, he's not like he doesn't loom very large in what's going on here what happens here right is that we we finally meet the 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 filmmakers um acropolis pictures is the studio yes um and so there's <laughs> these two guys who like own acropolis pictures Branca and Milovan, and they're Israeli. Yes. They are positioned as foreign investors, uh, you know, yeah. running this this studio in Hollywood. Big gold chains and flashy clothes and all that stuff. They're on stage with uh, Laura Sue and the Reverend Martin. The Reverend Martin. There's no blasphemy. You know, we just, we make entertainment. Yeah. Laura Sue points out the spe- the specific guy who's getting in her face the man who threatened her uh he calls her a slut again and you know you're ruining our children and then also in the crowd is 
a producer for the show, I guess, uh, which we kind of learn later. Uh, but his name is Danny. I'm a producer in this show, uh, in this movie. All this protest is an infringement on my rights to make it like to pursue a profit. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's this weird free speech yeah. argument that he's making. Yeah. Uh, this definitely felt like the kind of th- argument that would gain Morton Downey Jr. sympathy. Sure. Yeah. He's saying, what right do you have to get in the way of me pursuing profit? Yeah. <laughs> Everyone here is, is on the wrong side of history in a different way to me. Um, <laughs> yeah. Angel starts preaching from the, from the stage, uh, says that they're uh, idolaters. Um, he doesn't need to, like, he doesn't need <laughs> to see it. And he brings in an East Indian mystic to see the future. So this is a woman in a wheelchair, I think, uh, all wrapped up in yeah. um, kind of like sarong-like clothes. And he calls her Sarah Lanka. <laughs> oh, God. So bad. So Jim's watching from off stage or off camera. So they like yeah. bump him and like shove him over to make way for this woman. Um, and she starts saying that she sees a future of violence and fire and, and such. <laughs> the Reverend Martin uh, starts fire and brimstoning from uh from the stage and then suddenly a whole section of the audience gets up and starts singing because there's like a specific song that he has yeah he's it's uh he has a, he snuck a choir in as audience members uh and every one of his songs is a classic song with with the right. word angel in it they get they get more and more tenuous as it goes on which is which is a good joke i enjoy Morton Downey Jr. tries to get control, but it all turns into a full-on brawl. Mm-hmm. Good for ratings. The protesters have rushed the stage. They're struggling with the producer and the other Hollywood guys. We see a shot of Jim seeing Angel getting choked, uh, I think, by Danny. So he runs on yeah. to help Angel because, of, sh- of course, he does. So he pulls Danny off of him, keeps Angel from danger, and then someone breaks a chair over his head. <laughs> Um, goes to black i imagine that is a commercial break it's very dramatic yeah man that scene i couldn't tell what like in retrospect going over it i'm not sure what was supposed to be jokes and what was supposed to be like contemporary references i guess (laughs) right uh i think you go on that show expecting a fish the audience will be like "Ooh, ah you know trying to engage that and i think some of that is meant to just be exhaustion <laughs> with with that style of of show. Yeah, it, it it is presenting that as a parody of how those shows happen. Yeah, but within that, especially with like the East Indian mystic, who's like a white woman, and she gets up and runs right. Like she, so, everything about her is a fraud. Uh, but I think it's it's also meant to be part of the sort of the counterpoint or the the illustration of angel's hypocrisy as if we right, needed right. any when he when he accused them of being idolaters to then bring a fortune teller which would be somewhat flirting with idolatry <laughs> but one thing about the scene that i think does stand out and, and and this plays out later but it's this other producer danny he is just in the audience. He's not up on stage. And it seems like nobody else knows that he's going to be there. He's not on the same uh, wavelength of everyone else who's involved with this. Like, he's more sincere. Yeah, he, he's got money on the line. He's concerned about his money. Everyone else seems to be there for the theater. 
everyone's there to be right. part of the entertainment, except for him. In any case, when we come back, we're outside uh, in the parking lot. Um, Angel is dictating a bunch of notes for someone on like a like a tape recorder. He's talking about a yeah. university and a stadium. And there's a callback to this later, but it's mostly, I think, showing that he's... He's got big plans. And also, he's clearly gleeful about what just happened. Jim is still bleeding from being hit with that uh, chair. Uh, Angel makes a crack about good thing he didn't keep the coat because now it has blood on it. <laughs> yeah. And when we get a little bit about Angel, he's like, you know, that all went great. Yeah. That, that brawl <laughs> is good for Angel, right? That's uh, bringing attention. And Jim's response is, I love a fist fight with a good downbeat. <laughs> mm -hmm. Laura Sue comes over to him. She is also excited uh, and doesn't really seem to be taking it all seriously. Yeah. J Jim is concerned that she's still in danger. You could have been hurt in there and like those death threats. These people are clearly violent. Um, yeah. But I guess they're they have an opening night party. They have an event that she's excited to go to. And uh, she also makes a crack about how that corny gray jacket with the bloodstains that'll kill at the Phoenix. <laughs> <laughs> and she basically talks him into coming with her to this opening night party. Yeah, because, you know, that's exactly the kind of place that Jim wants to be. <laughs> so we have this establishing shot of uh, the Phoenix room. So my wife watched part of this with me. And when this came up, she was like, is that supposed to be the Viper room? Um, and I think so. Maybe. maybe yeah. So, you know, so that's like a legendary club in, in L.A., but she was like, when did River Phoenix die? Because he died outside of the Viper Room. And that's like, you know, right. a big thing. So we looked it up and he he died before this movie was certainly aired and probably shot. I think it was 93. All right. So is that a reference? Is that a reference? Like that's in bad taste. <laughs> yeah, that's weird. We might be reading too much into it. I don't know. I mean, that's a fine generic name for a club. Yeah, yeah. Um, so there's there's a line and there's a bouncer at the door. Uh, so this guy lets in Laura Sue and then Jim is coming behind her. He stops Jim and then Jim flashes a badge and says that he's DEA and runs this whole line about, you know, what's in that roach behind your ear? Yeah. Do I need to run your name and see what what else, you know, we have on you? And the guy's like, OK, fine. And lets him in, which is funny, but also like, wasn't she right there? <laughs> like, did you feel like, like he's with me? I, I wrote this down. I have padding mm -hmm. question mark. <laughs> the DEA badge comes up again. Yeah. But like, I think in neither case is it it's, it's This is the only place in the movie where Jim does like any kind of fast talk. That's what I was thinking too. Like, is this them saying... This is a thing that Jim can still do? Yeah. But, but it doesn't do it. It's a little clumsier than the way Jim normally does it. It doesn't quite fit right with with the the greater body of work usually a con like this uh would have a little bit more finesse and it would come back to bite him in the ass or you know there'd be yeah. something about it that would it'd, it'd be carrying more than one weight right yeah exactly yeah it would be something other than just getting him past a obstacle that they just put in his way and i think that that's kind of what you were getting at too there's no reason for there to be an obstacle at that moment I think it would have been kind of a more in-keeping bit if he, like, came later and there was no one there, but the bouncer was there. And then the bouncer wouldn't let him in. Yeah. Then he has to, like, do something. Th that's the thing that, like, uh, I've been trying to put my finger on uh, about 
a more recent stuff that I've seen, not Rockford Files related, but other stuff. Mm. A lot of times they'll just be like, character tried to do this. This is the obstacle. Character overcomes obstacle. Mm-hmm. And then that's it. And that doesn't tie into the rest of the fiction. It just gives them a beat of, you know, will they or won't they? Well, of course they will, because we got to get to this next spot. It's not even interesting how they do it. It's just that they're capable of doing it, I guess. Like, in the best cases of that, at least it's showing us something about the character, right? Right. But in most cases, you don't even need to do that. I feel like you either want to create a reason for why this would happen, and that would generate something interesting in your tale, or have other things come out of this. Right. Maybe there's somebody in line who's also a DEA agent, you know, that would be a completely different story, mm. but at least then you're you're not just throwing this moment away, kind of. Uh, that, I, I don't don't want to complain about uh, a Rockford Files, but I think that this is kind of a teachable mm-hmm. moment, right? Like this is a, a moment of like, that doesn't quite fit. I think you're right. He he does the bit with the DA badge, and then we cut to a shot with like ominous music of this limousine just sitting outside. Yeah. Then we go back inside. Jim finds Laura Sue. We get great background shots of more '90s fashion, including the 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 guy that uh, <laughs> Laura Sue is dancing with, who appears to be in head to toe flannel. Um. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, but yes, he comes over and gets introduced to our producers, to Bronca and Milovan, who are in a booth with uh, some other people and some women, and they're all drinking, and they have fancy drinks and everything. He lays out how she's in danger. He thinks that she needs protection. Uh, they think it's everything's fine. They don't think she needs defense, but if she does, she can hire him, but they won't pay for it because they don't think they need defense. Yeah. And then we go back outside and we see... Suddenly, the limo explodes. <laughs> the door guy sees this, turns to go in, and at least we get to see the back of his head, which has the little tiny ponytail that's shaved yes. <laughs> all the way back to a little spot and is like six inches long, just dangling off the back of his head. That is worth introducing this character because he has a mustache yeah, no, in the front absolutely. and a tiny ponytail <laughs> in the back. Um, so yes, he, uh, informs them that their limo has exploded. It was the limo of, uh, Bronca and Milovan. Everyone seems startled. And then we cut to Jim talking to our good friend, Dennis Becker outside, uh, <laughs> in the, uh, roped off area outside the club. Don't blink folks. Pay close attention. Cause this is precious little Dennis. You're going to get in this episode. <laughs> Jim Wan thinks that J- Dennis should go talk to Angel. It's his people that yeah. are have been making threats. And uh, he thinks uh, if he leans on Angel, they can get him to stop. Dennis, of course, <laughs> is saying that there's no evidence of that. He'd need a warrant. And uh, Angel has influence now. So <laughs> he doesn't want to do that unless there's a good reason. And of course, Jim does not have a good reason. So I think we have two different reads on what Dennis is doing here. Mm. The read that I came off of this with when I first saw it was that that Dennis was finally taken in by an angel scam. <laughs> angel has transformed himself into a man of God, and uh, he is not worth my time and effort. Now, I think your read is also like completely mm-hmm. legitimate. I can see Dennis being like, Angel's too much work right now. Yeah, my, my read of this was that Dennis doesn't have enough motivation to go after Angel to make it worth the headache he knows he will have 
going after Angel. It could be both. It could be yeah. a little mix. Maybe yeah. it's like, and I'm not inclined to because Angel has turned his turned himself around, right? Yeah, but uh, there's a part of me that really loves your read just because that is the more broken old man read. <laughs> <laughs> and that's and uh, Dennis starts as a broken old man and just continues down that path. Uh, but there's just something in the way he says it. This is the Reverend Martin we're talking about. Right. And that either is an ironic line or it's not. We'll let our audience decide. Yeah. There's a little gag where Laura Sue is bummed out and Jim assumes it's because she's realized that she's in danger. But then it's because the cops won't let her leave yet and she wants to go to the other party. <laughs> yes. <laughs> But uh, Jim impresses upon her that, like, this is getting serious now. You know, go stay with someone uh, that no one else would know where you are. So we go from here back to the temple with an establishing shot of a security guard with a dog. Uh, and I think you had something about the dog. Oh, yeah. So because um, this dog is padding. <laughs> oh, mm-hmm. I think this is another kind of weird scene where they did that, that thing we were just talking about with the DA badge and maybe you can, or the DEA badge, mm. but the dog is barking mm-hmm. at something and the security guard tells it not to. It's not even barking at Jim. Like, cause the camera pans over to where Jim was hiding and it's not right. where the dog was barking. Yeah. Jim is hiding basically in that frame, just like in a bush and the dog was barking the other direction. So, Okay charitable read of what happened here they were like we want to clearly show that they meet they that they're so serious about security that they have guard dogs right and we need to show that the guard dog is interested in something other than jim and that's why jim manages to get past these guard dogs but it also feels like another one of those moments where it's like here's a problem here's it solved we're done i think it's just padding yeah i think you have already put more thought into it than the scene probably had. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, that's my job as a podcaster. <laughs> I think it was just to see Jim sneak around. He does pick the lock on the big main doors. Very throwback Rockford action. Yeah. And then he finds the room conveniently marked records. There's a computer terminal there because it's the 90s. <gasps> And he needs to enter a password. The best bit of the episode is <laughs> just <laughs> clearly the best bit. This was so I talk about this idea sometimes of in, in game design, but I think it applies to entertainment. I most appreciate outcomes of scenes or of or of you know processes that are either like surprising yet welcome or obvious yet satisfying. Yeah. Right. Like those are kind <laughs> of the two main vectors where I'm like, yeah, this this narrative did its job. And and this is the biggest example of obvious yet satisfying. <laughs> I think it's important that we don't utter it right now. I think we should preserve Angel's privacy and security. And we don't say what his password is. And just say that, dear listener, you know it. <laughs> you, you, if you don't want to be spoiled on Angel's <laughs> password... We're going to surround this with the with, with the answering machine beeps. So yes. you can go ahead and skip ahead. <laughs> so yes. So Rockford sits down to look at the computer. Uh, a screen comes up that asks for a password to be entered. He thinks for about half a second. And then he types A-N-G-E-L. And of course it's the Rice password. And he even says, Angel, you're so obvious. Yeah, yeah there's some line in there, but it's just, ah. Uh. By by typing in the very uh, technical search string, 
criminal records. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he looks up the criminal records of parishioners. I, I would argue that uh, the criminal records of parishioners is something that Angel would indeed have on hand in the annals of like dumb computer stuff on tv this is actually closer than a lot of things but it's funny well i think i think the only reason why it it feels dumb is not because it's not a thing that a computer can do because this is precisely what a computer can do uh it's that we know the amount of work to put that database together (laughs) like angel (laughs) doesn't do that it's still running its search and then the uh the the angels of of the Lord the guards uh, <laughs> come on in uh, Zach in the lead and they haul Rockford out of the out of the room before his search completes so the camera stays like over the shoulder to see the screen as they hustle Jim out the door and so we see the search complete and then just a big list of names starts scrolling up the the screen so that's a kind of a cool shot it's it, it's nice and ominous too yes it's funny it kind of doesn't have a payoff. No, it doesn't. I was just, that, that's why I tripped up on that line there. Cause I was like, it's ominous for what? Um, I think that's kind of like, I think maybe part of why the pacing feels so weird for this for me Yeah, is that there are lots of setups that don't seem to have a payoff or the payoff doesn't seem equivalent to the amount of time spent on the setup. It's a bunch of red herrings, right? Like there's a lot of. Sure. Yeah. You know, as you're watching, you're like, what's angel scam? Angel scam is, I mean, he probably has a larger scam in mind, but really it's, he's just taking money from the pair, from his parishioners, right? Like right. He's just, like his scam is just being a televangelist. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it, it's straightforward and something that we can, uh, at this point, we don't trust any of the producers because they're all just, they all seem slimy. Yeah. But someone blew up a limo. So like there is a real danger. But nobody really panicked about that. <laughs> yeah, everyone seemed fine. Things are happening that seem like they should be getting bigger reactions than they are. Yeah. Uh, Laura Sue is like blasé about everything. Angel is pretty blasé about everything within the parameters of how Angel acts. Yeah, it's it's hard to describe Angel as blasé, <laughs> but like, yeah. <laughs> um. Well, we do uh, go to seeing Angel watching himself on TV, of course, in a... Uh. What I describe as a resplendent silk robe. <laughs> if it didn't have a TV, if instead it had a fireplace, mm-hmm. this would be Vincent Price. Yes. Sitting there with like a book open mm-hmm. uh, and a, a, about to unleash some horror upon you. So uh, his his gorillas bring Jim in to see him. He says that he is disappointed in Jim sneaking <laughs> around his place, but is still willing to just talk to him. So like he like dismisses the guys and we get another good angel Jim scene as they talk. There's a lot of business with this. There's a scale model of the uh, university of THLU for, for I guess angel to plan out where his stadium is going to be, but that's going to displace like a Uh, Bible study house. Right. And then, yeah, and so Jim, you know, is like, oh, yeah, get rid of the Bible study house at the, you know, Bible college, calling out the, the yeah. hypocrisy. And Angel does not understand why this is a problem. It's a funny it's a funny piece of business because he's literally moving this little model house around and it doesn't fit anywhere because he's put a giant stadium in the middle of everything. Yeah, it's this moment here where... I think I am probably most at sea with with the the scheme mm-hmm. 
again, I had the benefit of having once seen this episode. So, like, there's a little hint of, I, like, I know, I know who the villains are. But I was like, is it a real estate scam? Sure. Like, is this whole thing building up to this stadium? Is that the actual endpoint of the of the con? I guess again, spoilers. It's not like this. Doesn't this is this is the end of this thread of this story? Yeah. We don't follow this anymore. This is actually very important in the Jim Angel dynamic. The reason that he has the gorillas leave them alone is Jim like looks him straight in the eye and says, "In all the years I've known you, I've never hurt you." Yeah. Uh, and I think that's like gets to the heart of their dynamic. He'll, he's exasperated with him. He threatens to hurt him all the yeah, time. Yeah. But like when the chips are down, Jim has never actually harmed Angel. Yeah. And uh, it's so funny because his so much of his uh, way of wrangling Angel is throwing his weight around, which is something he does with no one else. Mm-hmm. He, I mean, he, he won't back down from a fight, but he'll, he'll, uh, try to avoid a fight or, or yeah. something like that. Like, I feel like Angel's maybe the only person. No, I guess there's been a few people, just incidental characters that we've seen where he's like, I'll climb your tree. I remember that line. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, when he's talking to like goons and stuff. Yeah. But Angel, in terms of people that he is friends with, is the only one that he also threatens, but he doesn't actually hurt. That's a real strong connective thread to the original show and like to their characters as established through all of this history. Um, so that was nice. I like that. Jim wants, uh, again, uh, wants Angel to call off his people. Uh, someone's going to get hurt. Someone blew up that limo. Yeah. And so Angel goes into, well, I can't call off the boycott. I have a schedule here. I'm on a timeline. And so like, okay, now we're getting right. Now we're <laughs> going to find out something that's going on. But this kind of goes into the real story behind how he got to where he is. Cause he starts talking about how this all started with an IRS audit and you know, churches are tax free. Yeah. So he essentially conned the first Reverend Reverend star or whoever, right. He showed up to the thing with this sob story. Yeah. And then he got up on stage and then he says that he started choking <laughs> like Jimmy, I was really choking. And that was the perfect Aramaic uh, that got <laughs> Reverend Star to to take an interest in him, and so from then on, it's just been like now, like I don't pay any taxes. This is great. There's a great line in there too, where he's like, "And for all I know, it was. I don't know. I could I, I could have been speaking Aramaic. You and I don't know what that sounds like. Look, it just happened to me, and I just went along with it." Jim wants the name of the biggest nut in his congregation. (laughs) And he threatens Angel with Becker getting a warrant to get this information. Yeah. Um, Which is kind of an empty threat, but he makes it. (laughs) And immediately Angel's like, there's a guy named Buddy Rennie. (laughs) Uh, And our scene ends with a gag where Angel sits down heavily, makes a face, stands up, and he is sat down on (laughs) on the Bible study model. Angel. 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 We get into uh, our next scene is at the there's a screening of little Ezekiel. (laughs) Oh, God. And we pan across and we see our producers and everyone. And then we see a man asleep. And then we see Laura Sue. And then we see Jim next to her. And he is also asleep. Yeah. Uh, She wants reassurance that she's good in the scene. Like, and so she wakes up Jim and he's like, oh, yeah, you're you're very good. Um, And then we watch the scene in the movie. That's the miracle of the bowling balls. <laughs> Ezekiel is this kid and his parents break up and then he engineers situations that are like God 
taking a hand yeah. to get them back together. What was most interesting to me about this was that they used bad digital effects for the movie in the movie yeah. to do these like flying bowling balls. <laughs> I just thought that was the weirdest choice. I think it made that movie look like a movie from the mid nineties. <laughs> like yes, it really, I mean, that's true. When, when we talk about bad digital effects, you have to look up lawnmower man. Mm-hmm. 92. All right. So yeah. So I, I suspect they're intentionally bad. Uh, this scene is also basically padding. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, the real action is uh, at the reception afterwards where Laura Sue continues to want reassurance that she's good and uh, keeps badgering Jim with questions about the movie. And he, in the end, can't lie and says that it, eh, it is a little boring. <laughs> yeah. She does the most kind of stereotypical actor thing of like, tell me I'm great. No, tell me the truth. Oh, you told me the truth. That was really a mean thing to say. Yeah. Yeah. But Jim says that there is something weird going on. Uh, he's getting a weird feeling. That film is not blasphemous. Like, there's no real religious content, basically. And there's no need to boycott it. Yeah. That doesn't make any sense. And I lost. I think I lost track of this thread earlier in the movie, maybe. But Laura Sue is looking around for that guy, Danny, because they're dating as well as he's the producer. Or they did date or something. Yeah. So, yeah, I think I got confused about who was who. It's my prerogative. I'm an old man. (laughs) As part of this conversation, though, uh, of course, he'd be at these things because he has money in the movie. Yeah. He has bought 40% of the movie. So that's his stake. That's another red flag for Jim, right? Like, oh, there's money involved. They go to Danny's house. Cars are there in the driveway. She knows where the key is in the bush beside the front door. (laughs) And we have this very ominous silence in the house as they're walking through and she's calling his name and it's echoing and there's no response right getting up to the dramatic mid-movie reveal yeah they go into a bathroom from the camera we see i think an arm and a leg like draped out of this bath and then we see our protagonist see that uh danny bartley is dead in this bathtub I think there's like an important life lesson here too, is that if you, if you get into a bath, don't drape an arm and a leg. I think most <laughs> dead bodies, most dead mm-hmm. people are draped. Bathtubs. Yeah. And it could very well be that that's what kills people in bathtubs. <laughs> uh, written on the mirror over him is Matthew 1349. Oh yeah. We hope you enjoyed that discussion of uh, another wonderful episode of the Rockford Files. Here are a couple ways to support us that will keep us bringing this podcast to you, our fellow Rockford Files fans. First, you can rate and review us on iTunes or whatever else you use for podcasts. Second, you can support us directly for as little as a dollar an episode at patreon.com slash 200 a day. And of course, both of us have other projects. Epi, what do you have going on right now? As always, I'm working on the next issue of Worlds Without Master. Uh, You can go to www.worldswithoutmaster.com or just patreon.com slash epidiah. Or you can go to digathousandholes.com where I talk about my other projects, including non-sword and sorcery games and fiction. How about you, Nathan? What are you working on? For the year of 2018, I am doing a monthly zine project called Zine 2018. Each monthly issue is a collection of essays, art, photography, and a game in each one organized around a central theme based on the month. 
So you can see more about that at ndpdesign.com slash zine2018. And it is available through my Patreon at patreon.com slash ndpaoletta. Uh, in addition, you can check out all of my games at ndpdesign.com, including the worldwide wrestling role-playing game and the forthcoming Trouble for Hire, which may be yeah. interesting to some of our listeners. So that's it for now. Thank you again for listening. We very much appreciate your support. And now back to the show. And we come back. It's a crime scene. The cops are there. Jim is talking to Dennis. And Dennis, and now Jim is, he's suspicious of our uh, Israeli producers of uh, Branka and Milovan, the guys dripping gold and insincerity. But then, in a very red Lamborghini, is the sudden arrival of, as Dennis says, the best PI in LA, <laughs> Vincent Pinguinetti. Ah, uh, Pinguinetti. Or otherwise known as the Penguin. Yes. My suspicion is <laughs> Penguinetti is a name that they wanted to use for years. And then they said, listen, I don't know how many of these movies we're going to have. This is our chance. It's either now or never. I think it's time for the Penguin. <laughs> Penguinetti is played by Richard Romanis. Uh, who I did not recognize, but apparently was one of the voice actors in Heavy Metal. Oh. And had a role in an original Rockford Files episode that we have not done yet, Three Day Affair with a 30-Day Escrow. He was also in Wizards. Yeah, he was Weedhawk. Nice. Among just a bunch of TV and stuff. Yeah, he's got that 80s and 90s TV show heavy yeah. feel to him. I mean, he definitely looks like he stepped out of Magnum P.I., yeah. honestly. <laughs> We are introducing a new character here in the middle of our movie. He has a bunch of lines that are very Lance White-esque. Yes. <laughs> Dennis is falling all over himself to uh, fawn over this guy. He's been talking Dennis up. He did a real good job on some case. And he has his poker nights with Captain Chapman. <laughs> so he's been, uh, he says he has very complimentary things to say to Chappie yeah. about, uh, about Lieutenant Becker. Like you mentioned Lance White, but Chappie in particular, that's between uh, Lancer mm -hmm. and Chappie. <laughs> so this is, this is a, a rarefied company that this guy keeps. Right. Um, apparently, uh, so Acropolis Pictures, so that's the movie production company. They have hired Pinguinetti to arrange security now that there's these obvious threats. Uh, Jim does not like the penguin. No. Forget if it's here or later, but has some, some line about how he has great PR but and no morals or something like that. Yeah. Uh, there's this great shot where they're like face to face, like trying, like staring each other down and Jim is not backing down from him. Uh, and that clearly is kind of throwing off Penguin Eddie. He kind of insults Jim, says, you know, go back to collections. You're done on this case. Something like yeah. that. Uh, before he leaves, Jim tells Dennis to look at Angel's congregants. Uh, they're basically a bunch of bottom feeders and criminals, so he'll probably find something there. Uh, but he did check out this guy, Buddy, that Angel had told him about, and he does not think that that guy's a killer, even though he's a creep. And we never hear of that again. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Jim tells Laura Sue that he's leaving. Uh, Pinguinetti is the new security. She asks what she owes him and he says that she doesn't owe him anything so damn it jim <laughs> uh he just wants to go home and go fishing as he's leaving she gets into his car and is like no you're my bodyguard vincent yells hey that's my client and rockford <laughs> is like okay fine i am your bodyguard 
he's been resisting saying that he's her bodyguard this entire time, right? And then yeah. it takes uh, Vincent Pinguinetti wanting to get in his business to make him accept that role. I, I love the simplicity and the cadence of this turnaround because he's just like, she says, you're my bodyguard. He says, no, I'm not. And he's like, hey, that's my client. Yes, I am. <laughs> like That was just... That felt very Rockford Files. It is a linguistic J-turn. If you will. Yes. <laughs> uh, well, speaking of J-turns, not that we get to see a J-turn, but uh, we go to back to Jim's trailer and it looks like the Firebird has been fixed. Yeah. Looks all clean and graffiti-less. Dennis complains about Satan being written on the Firebird at some yeah. point, but I think that's earlier. <laughs> driving, You're not helping anything driving around with Satan written on the side of your car. Yeah. Weird connection between the first movie and this one about this uh, Satan stuff being involved. Yeah. (laughs) Like, incidentally, in both of these movies. Um, Oh, the 90s. Yeah, like, a lot of the Satan stuff really came up in the 80s and then the evangelical, like, reaction to it. I feel like it's it's referring to this sort of discussion. I I will also note that around the time that this was probably being filmed, I had a friend in high school who, for homecoming... We just grabbed a bunch of caution orange spray paint and spray painted 666 on the side of his car and a giant pentagram on the top of his car. And it stayed that way until he got rid of the car. Nice. So drove around my hometown with Satan written on the side of the car. And look at where you are today. I am a mildly known podcaster about the Rockford Files. <laughs> um, this this gag was funny to me just because in these movies, I'm like, oh, Jim's trailer. It's so big and nice yeah. <laughs> like compared to the 70s. They go in and she looks around, clearly unimpressed, and says, it's kind of small. And he <laughs> says, I'm kind of broke. Yeah. <laughs> We have a bit of an emotional moment here where she starts breaking down a little bit about Danny's death. He was just trying to do the best he could in his father's shadow. I don't know if that came up earlier that his dad was a producer or something. But I think we get the message that he he was kind of collateral damage to whatever's going on. Yeah. Like he wasn't a bad guy. Um, Jim looks up the Matthew reference and it's about severing the wicked so shall it be the end of the world. The angels shall come forth and sever the wicked from among the just. Uh, later that night, Jim is sleeping on the couch, of course. She is watching a movie on the TV in his room where she's sleeping. And that wakes him up. Uh, it's 3.30 in the morning, uh, but she wants to talk. Um, she's clearly still upset, right? Talking about how like the movie's bad and it's going to be bad for a career and stuff. And Jim is saying that it's in look in in L.A. It's an achievement just to be in a movie. (laughs) You're already ahead of the curve. And so he's kind of like comforting her in a way that she, I think, can actually accept. Yeah. Like he's not just buttering her up. He's kind of saying, sure, the movie's bad, but lots of movies are bad. Right. That doesn't mean that your career's over. Right. She was good in it. And people might recognize that. Uh, And so he segues into talking, kind of talking through the situation with the movie. Uh, She mentions that it was over budget and that's when they sold 40% to Danny. And so he wants to know, like, maybe that got sold at a discount. What happens to that 40% now that Danny's dead? Can they buy it back? Starting to get to some of the motivation behind follow the money, right? Yeah. And this is, this is classic Rockford style. Oh, good. We're in bureaucracy. We're in (laughs) (laughs) this we can sort out. (laughs) We finished this scene with her talking about her best friend, Stan, her bear, Stanislavski. Mm -hmm. And we get a little kind of confessional style 
monologue from her where she's talking about how she doesn't really have friends. Yeah. Uh, and so, you know, she's like, I have my club friends, they'll go anywhere. And I have my actress friends, but we're all competing for the same parts. Boyfriends, but they're all on the prowl. Um, so she doesn't have any real friends, just Stan and now Jim. So is this a turning point with you and her? Mm-hmm. Are you are you making your peace with her now? Yeah, a little bit. I started being less annoyed watching her on screen, yeah. <laughs> starting with this scene and also she's actually not in it as much for the rest of the movie <laughs> so that helps uh i mean i think it's a good scene and she says that she wants to be more than she is but she doesn't know how yeah and asks if that's nuts and he says that's not nuts it's your best quality yeah i this is this is where i make peace with the best quality gag mm-hmm. that that went past being kind of a gag and yeah. into a like motif right yeah uh, into a character thing. Yeah. This is a, a shared joke between two of them and it's becoming tender and it's a way for mm-hmm. them to communicate in a way that gets through to her. And also it just shows a connection there. Like I, yeah. I like it. I, I dig it. I don't know. Maybe it's just about her, the, like the performance or something on paper. I see how she has developed another dimension Yeah, and we see a little more of motivation for her and why she's so flighty and why she, she acts the way she does, how those are all layers of, camouflage right for this Mm -hmm. like deep insecurity that she has but i just didn't have sympathy for her before so this was me being like okay this is where i need to have sympathy for her going forward and not that (laughs) i actually felt sympathy for her but again that might just be because i was not super engaged and taking notes and pausing it and stuff like that maybe if i was watching straight through i would have had a more natural yeah maybe if you had a human heart maybe (laughs) um we go to the next day where uh, Jim now driving Rocky's truck. Yeah. R.I.P. Noah Barry Jr. There's a, and there's a deal about Jim's suit, the one he gets the blood on that was given to him by Rocky. Something like that. Yeah. yeah. So that came up at some point. But yes, uh, he drives her to her management agency. Uh, she has a she's been with them for six months. And this is the first time that she's been called in for a meeting, let alone on a Saturday. Yeah. And there's all this buildup where she's getting more and more nervous. And then they go into this, uh, <laughs> they go into this boardroom and there's a big long table and surrounded with people and they're all just staring at her. <laughs> at this moment in my notes, it's this meeting exclamation point. <laughs> <laughs> it's a, it's a thing to behold. This is probably the most tension filled moment of the episode yeah. for me. <laughs> so this, this is really well done, but so they're all staring at her and there's this beat. And you see her super nervous and she's like trying to smile, but not really, you know, there's one chair at the head of the table and she sits down in it and then everyone stands up and starts applauding. (laughs) (laughs) And it is so weird. And I think she doesn't know what to make of it. And we don't know what to make of it. Uh, The main, so I guess her actual agent, I don't remember if we've seen him before yet, but his name is Jerry or Jer. Yeah. But he gets up and he is very slimy and obsequious and immediately hateable right yes (laughs) at least i found him to be so uh little ezekiel it's it's doing great it's boffo in the city and sacco in the burbs (laughs) it's exactly how i would describe something doing great so this is a celebration of her as part of this management agency for being in such a successful film they're estimating the opening weekend to be a 23 million take which sounds pretty respectable for a bad movie in 1995 so in 1995 a 23 million dollar opening weekend it would come in behind mortal Kombat, 
but ahead of Die Hard with a Vengeance. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> it would be the eighth largest opening weekend in 1995 over Waterworld and Bad Boys <laughs> and Seven. Oh, my God. I've seen all those films. <laughs> I went to see Mighty Morphin Power Rangers in the, in the theater. And Jumanji. Wow. A lot of good movies came out in 95. Clueless. Braveheart. Wow. Anyway. So, yeah. Assuming that these numbers are all not adjusted for inflation, I guess. That is a boffo opening. Jim. So Jim is like behind, like hovering behind her. Yeah. Like he's inhabiting this bodyguard role. Um, And I think he brings up that she's, you know, still in danger. And Jerry says that they should go on TV, uh, confront these right wing wackos. You know, it'll be good for the box office. They were slightly irrationally hostile towards Jim and Jim's presence. Yes. I can easily read into that as a, they don't want anybody influencing their star. That's what I read it as. But it was, it was slightly jarring to me. I was like, okay, you're obviously up to no good if you're like this. He says something like, oh, is this your favorite uncle? He should scram so we can talk business, right? Like that kind of thing. This guy has some of the best lines of this whole we're, get, we're we're about to hit my favorite. Jim says, you know, this is real danger. Are you willing to take a bullet for her? And he's like, of course. I know danger. I was I was in Grenada. <laughs> yeah. This is a pretty fun scene. I think this is probably the most, like, comedic scene, yeah. really. Uh, I mean, outside of Angel just being a funny character, but in terms of the snappy dialogue and the back and forth and the barbs and everything, this is the most, like... Yeah, this is where he sets this, this line... I've been to Fear City. I've seen that elephant. <laughs> and we know as viewers of the show that Jim and Jim were both in the Korean War. So he's he's also right. seen action. The the US invasion of Grenada, not a lot of live fire. Yeah. <laughs> and as we're about to find out, he was a cook. He says, well, we were expected to fight too or something like that. And then this winds up with a big dramatic fear is just a four letter word. And then there's a sudden gunshot through the window (laughs) that he's standing by. And we see uh, the glass break and everyone starts yelling. There's a couple more gunshots. So Jim takes like immediate command of the situation, which is very cool. This is one of Jim, my favorite character traits of Jim, and that is when it becomes dangerous to people's lives. It's not that he takes control, but he's just like, he drops all nonsense. This is what we, we need to do. Do this, do this, do this. So in this case, he uh, is like, keep low, make for the, the lobby or whatever. Keep going. These these walls are too thin to stop bullets. Yeah. So stay low. Uh, call 911. Uh, and, he, and he like hits a button to lower all the yeah. shades, all these very practical things. And then we see uh, Jerry huddled underneath the table as Jim does peek out one of the shades, which I thought yeah. was <laughs> as he's standing in front of the window, which I thought was probably a bad call. But thankfully, he sees the the, the rifleman on a like a rooftop below the level they're on running yeah. down a stairwell. And then we get this final bit of uh, Jer, you know, what am I supposed to do? There's 10 yards of open terrain. Just very yeah. like, he's clearly afraid and he's he's <laughs> still trying to keep up his bravado with technical military language. You know That do not apply. Uh, and he ends that with, what am I supposed to die for an actor? 
this is the moment this moment is uh just a fun bit of instant karma right this is the most 70s rockford feeling yeah. scene to me between all the all the verbal gags like seeing this character get his immediate comeuppance jim taking command yeah. you know the the action happening right on the dialogue yeah. which was fun we are we go to uh that rooftop i suppose the cops are on the scene as is Pinguinetti, <laughs> who's uh, complimenting Dennis, he's found the shell casings. So, so delightfully patronizing the way he's complimenting. Him. He really, yeah. it really like, is. Good job, little boy. Good job. Jim, of course, has no time for this ridiculousness, but uh, Dennis does get in the the line. The penguin said, "I'm a policeman's policeman." Yeah. <laughs> Dennis loves Vincent Pinguinetti. Uh, Vincent says that he has uh, two female operatives to take over the bodyguarding duty for Laura Sue. He says that they're both martial artists. Jim's like, I'm a good artist myself. Finger painting. (laughs) Finger painting. Sometimes I sculpt mountains out of my ice cream. (laughs) Laura Sue does kind of whisper to Rockford that she feels like she has to do what her agent says. And her agent says, yeah, Penguinetti's taking over, but she'll sneak away as soon as she can (laughs) and give him a call. (laughs) Jim returns to the truck in the parking garage. And then as he gets in, he hears two of the other like agents that were in that yeah. boardroom. They're talking to each other on cell phones, but they're both in the garage. Yeah. <laughs> and like and it's a gag, but yeah. Like Jim can look out his window one way and see one of them and look out the window the other way and see the other one. Uh so we're just hearing him overhear them talking and they're complaining about another movie that they think is gonna fail. And then one of them says, We sure could use a boycott on that one. Yeah. And Jim sits up and goes, so that's what Angel's selling. (laughs) Peels out and the two guys see each other. I guess they did not realize that they were in the same place. (laughs) This is, I feel like, a little bit of a a curmudgeon about burgeoning technology here. (laughs) This is not the first time we've seen mobile phones in Rockford Files. The car phone. Mm -hmm. I think this is just, it's it's a funny bit. Uh, once I realized that this was not another layer of mystery, that this was a plot revelation yeah. um, to get us going into the into our final act of the show. Uh, we cut to Angel doing a full on evangelical preach, uh, the TV broadcast, I guess. Again, well, this is the first time we see him doing it like live. Right. Other than that, I feel like this is a little bit more padding. Yeah, yeah. And we see him doing his thing, which is fun. And the camera work's kind of interesting because it keeps, like, the camera's moving around as the omniscient audience. Mm. And then it'll stop. And then Angel will start addressing it directly. And then we'll cut and we'll see that he's looking directly into a, one of the TV cameras. So, like, that's a cool, like, stylistically, I, I thought that was a fun little way of bringing us into his world a little bit. But uh, it ends up with him leaving his choir singing another classic rock song with the word angel in it. This one, I, the most ridiculous of them all, which is Teen Angel. Right. <laughs> <laughs> A song about my adolescence. <laughs> <laughs> so he scurries off stage because he's he's parched. Uh, there's supposed to be Perrier waiting for <laughs> for the Reverend Martin at all times. So he's giving his his guards the what for. But they're having none of it. Uh, Zach says that. They haven't been paid in two weeks. <laughs> now, where's where's the money? Angel tries to fob him off and he's like, look, in a scam when the bodyguards don't get paid, they leave the body in the gutter. <laughs> and then his bodyguards grab Angel and haul him off of his own stage. Good on them. 
They throw Angel through a door, and then before they can follow, Jim comes out of nowhere to close it and lock it so that they can't pursue. <laughs> uh, and so Jim gets Angel away from his angry uh, criminal bodyguards. Yeah, this is sort of the end of the Angel plot. Right, and this is the the, the thing that rolls through to the end of the episode yeah. with Angel deciding what he decides, I guess. But yes, that is the a- end of the preaching. Um Jim is driving away with him in the truck, asks him straight out if he's selling boycotts to movie producers. Uh, And he says that he controls his flock, but it's big, Jimmy. Uh, This is big business. Prayer pledges are dwindling. This boycott thing could be huge. Yeah, this is a new product that he's testing. Free publicity, brings up the box office, you know, rinse and repeat. It's good. Yeah, it's good. But he says that he does not know who killed Danny. They uh, meet back up with Laura Sue. Oh, it's like a Polish restaurant, I think. Yeah, because Angel, it's Danish. It's like, I'll get a Danish coffee and a sweet cookie or something. Yes. He goes on a racist tirade Uh, (laughs) about immigrants, which we saw in the first movie. Yeah. Also, remember? Angel has this this streak of American exceptionalism, and he doesn't appreciate uh, people coming in from other countries. Yeah, yeah, it's a weird element to his character that I don't think is evident in the seventies show. I mean, here it's a laugh line or it's intended to be a laugh line. I think of like Danish coffee and a sweet cookie. Why can't these immigrants do anything right? And then a beat later, he's like, I I want a Danish coffee and a sweet cookie. (laughs) And Jim says, we're not feeding you. Um, They pull out of him that the boycott was Biff Adams idea. He's the head of marketing at Acropolis. Uh, and so he's the one who set up the meeting between Angel and uh, the Israeli producers. Danny was not involved. He didn't know about it. Uh, so Jim then talks through so that we see what's happening. Uh, you know, if the movie was on the rocks, it looked like they were selling Danny 40% of nothing just to get it done. But suddenly with the boycott, it's worth something. Yeah. So they wanted their 40% back. Maybe they rigged the explosion to cover the murder. To make it look like it was, you know, these protesters or whatever, or these boycotters. Jim wants Angel to come with him to break into the Acropolis Studios and look up Danny's deal. Find out what the actual deal was. Angel doesn't know why Jim needs him. And he has a good line of, I might need you to grovel if we get caught. Yeah, I am slightly with Angel on this one. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I think it's just Jim doesn't want to let Angel out of his sight. Yeah, yeah. We uh, go to... The three of them at Acropolis Pictures. They, uh, Laura Sue is going to wait in the car. Um, Angel is still wearing his like vestments <laughs> yeah. that he was giving his, uh, doing his preaching in. So now he's put a coat over it, but he still has this like bulky robe, which is pretty, it's a pretty good bit. Jim and Angel uh, head into the lot. And then we see Vincent Pinguinetti watching them through a window yeah. on the other side of the street with binoculars. <laughs> Like a penguin. <laughs> and he lifts up the phone and he calls calls Bronca. Jim Rockford and Angel Martin are breaking into your studio. Uh, Jim makes Angel go over the fir- the fence first so that he doesn't run away after Jim <laughs> goes over the fence. I mean, it's a very fun and clear ploy on Angel's part to yeah. try and get Jim over the fence so he can run. But Jim's not having it. And that's another thing about these movies. We saw it in the last movie where at this point in their relationship, Jim knows all of Angel's tricks and does not fall for any of them. (laughs) 
In the office, we see movie posters for Dr. Giggles and Raising Kane. Yeah, I've seen neither of those, but I remember them coming <laughs> out. Angel sees 30 boycotts. Yeah. 30 movies, 30 boycotts. Outside, uh, Bronca and Milovan have shown up. They have guns. Now we get this really interesting, this really interesting conversation between Bronca, maybe mainly, and Vincent. Bronca's like, "Oh, they broke in. I'm going to kill them." Yeah. Vincent's like, "This is America. We call the cops." Yeah. (laughs) It's like, why? Yeah. (laughs) It's. I mean, we could solve it. Right. It's like this is premeditated murder. Now I'm an accessory before the fact. If you go kill them, I think unstated, like. I'll sell you out to preserve my own skin unless you hire me on your security staff permanently. How much do you want? He goes, oh, how about 100000 a year? <laughs> Bronca says, why would I pay 100000 to get rid of a problem that I can solve with this two ounces of lead? Yeah. And he points the gun at Vincent and then there's like a noise crash. Yeah. And we're back with Jim shutting a file drawer. Uh, that, that's a fun exchange there. I mean... Mm-hmm. fun like murder but i mean i think it's an interesting dramatization of something that i feel like happens probably in, in tabletop games a lot one side of some kind of conflict or issue has no reason not to go to an extreme yeah and so you're trying to find some common ground like some way to make an array like make some kind of compromise worth having right Right. Like, this would be too much of a hassle for you. If you killed me, Mm. you'd have to hide this or that. You know, like something that doesn't just... Because he just provides them with the like another problem that they can solve the exact same way they were about to solve the the previous one, right? Like Exactly. As it turns out, there are consequences. Yeah. But there's something about how like these guys, they don't think there are consequences. Or they think any consequences are not going to apply to them. So they're willing to go to this extreme. So it's an interesting little microcosm of that dynamic. I've experienced that in games where it's like, okay, how can we find a way for this not to just end with let's kill this guy? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Because that's like actually the easy answer when there are no consequences in in many narratives. So how do you build that around that moment? Uh, In this case, it's serving the greater story. So we see it come back in a a minute. Back in uh, the office, Jim has indeed found the deal. Danny bought his share for... Five million dollars, which means that now that the movie has done so well, he would be getting twenty million dollars or more, depending on how well it does overseas. But there was a survivor clause for them to buy it back at fair market value, and they killed him after the boycott started, but before the return, like before it actually opened. So the market value when they bought it back was that same five million dollars. So yes, they killed him. He makes a point about how there's like similar handwriting in Braga's signature as the threatening notes. He makes a French seven. Yes. I did not know that was called a French seven where you put a cross through the seven. I, I knew that. I don't know why I knew it was called the French seven. Other than I also know that the, their ones look a lot like sevens as well. Uh, that's how I make my sevens. I did not know it was French. Oh my God. You could be so easily framed for murder in 1995. <laughs> <laughs> Our two Israelis jump them on the way out of the office uh, with the line, it's against the law to break into my building, so you have to die. (laughs) They put them in the back of their car, and we get a dramatic shot where we see poor Vincent Pinguinetti already in the back of the car. Like, we see his face, and then we cut to the side, and we see the blood. He is clearly dead. And uh, Angel, of course, sits in the middle. (laughs) 
and Jim uh, is on the opposite side and they start heading out to Vincent's boat. Like, it's a simple story. You killed him and then had an accident. <laughs> their their plan doesn't seem to work in my brain. I tried to figure it out while I was watching it. and Right. This is a whole sequence, right? So yeah, they kind of tell him what they're going to do. Angel starts praying, saying, this is a legitimate prayer this time. Yeah. <laughs> Please don't let me die. And if you have to take Jimmy, I understand. <laughs> it's hard to save two, to save both of us. And this reminded me of in Chicken Little as a Little Chicken when he does the same thing with the mob guys. Yes. <laughs> Jim should be enough. So they're on this uh, marina. They're making Jim and Angel carry Vince's body, which is very ghoulish. And they're saying something like, you shot him. We shoot you. Then we put the gun in your hand. You all yeah, shot yeah. each other. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> sure. It is thought through exactly as much as oh, we'll shoot everyone and make it look like they killed each other. All right. We've gotten away with blowing up our own limo and hiring a sniper to shoot our own meeting. <laughs> yeah, like we're not going to face any consequences. So it doesn't, we don't have to think about this too hard. But then Laura Sue to the rescue. Yeah. We hear honking and see the, see the headlights of the truck as it comes barreling towards them. Everyone scatters and there's a brief uh, chaotic scramble. Guns are dropped and picked up. There's a bit of a brawl. Angel ends up shot in the butt. <laughs> and we know this because he starts yelling, my butt, my butt. And I thought of you. I uh, I loved it. I could think of no better uh, place to shoot Angel and uh, mm -hmm. no better moment for that to happen. Milovan goes down. Branka flees with one gun. Jim pursues him with the other gun. And Laura Sue takes care of Angel. Yeah, she runs up and is like, I'm going to turn you over. No, 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 no. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Jim chases Bronca onto a boat, each trying to find the other yeah. as they're going around. Jim ends up with a strategic advantage where he drops a life raft into the water. And then as Bronca tries to stalk, uh, stalk him, he loosens up a swinging boom. He starts saying that they can make a deal. And then Jim has the final word with negotiations are over. Yes. The boom swings around, knocks Bronca off the boat into the water. He starts yelling because he can't swim. And Jim, always the good guy, throws him a life preserver. Yeah. Uh, I, I understood half of Jim's plan. <laughs> <laughs> the, the raft hitting the water and attracting his attention made sense. I couldn't figure out the physics on the boom, uh, but that's fine. Yeah. I, I believe that a boom could do that. I just couldn't figure out like how he was doing it from where he was. And I, I do love that he throws the, the life preserver in after him. That That is classic Jim. All right. So uh, the cops are there cleaning up. Angel, uh, he says it's it's a divine penance that he's <laughs> taking this shot in the butt. Um, Jim makes a mention about how once the, you know, the fraud investigation really gears up, then he'll yeah. be in trouble. <laughs> and Angel's like, nope, I'm out of the church. <laughs> so I think Angel seeing seeing the advantages of that position swiftly dwindling. Yeah. Claims that he is uh, abandoning his uh, preaching ways. Um, Becker is super sad about the death yeah. of Vincent Pinguinetti. <laughs> Pinguinetti, he private eyes, private eye. He can make you laugh. He can make you cry. <laughs> you know, they have these guys for this whole, you know, kidnapping them and assault, but it's their word against Jim's for Pinguinetti's death and Danny's death because they're alibying each other for both of those and blaming Rockford. Yeah. We 
have all of our principles kind of come together. Laura Sue confronts Branca, says, I know you killed Vincent. And he's like, I'm not going to let some actor who works for me tell me what what happened. Right. (laughs) You know, you're lying. I have it on film. And she (laughs) holds up her camera that we have not seen since the very first time we saw her at the beginning of the episode an hour and a half ago. (laughs) So, yeah, uh, I mean, we talked about this at the beginning. Uh, It should have shown up one more time. Yeah, it it felt a little out of nowhere, right? Like, I believe that like that makes sense for the wrapping up the plot. Yeah, but it, it wasn't clear to me that she was there when those events went down. It's not unreasonable that she would be because she may have been there with uh, Jim and Angel, but they left her in the car. Oh, right, right. The way they the way it was paced out did have her there. I feel like that 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 was supposed to be like a dramatic yeah reveal, but it kind of felt random to me. <laughs> yeah, it needed it needed an extra nudge. Yeah, you know, like w- w- one more moment to make it to keep it in our brain. Yeah, you know, you need two points to make a line, mm-hmm. and then once you do that. You could put whatever you want on that line. You know what I mean? Like you just need to say, here it is, here it is again. And then people will be expecting it, mm. but not. Right. Well, that it gets back to that like unexpected, but welcome or yeah, exactly. you know, like obvious, but satisfying. Like once it's queued up, then it's obvious, yet satisfying. And in this yeah. case, it was not obvious. Yeah. So it felt random because I've forgotten about this camera gimmick of hers so whatever it's fine yeah it's functional it just seems like it could have been easily punched up with just adding that camera into an earlier scene somewhere yeah that's all exactly so our our bad guy producers are looks like they're going to jail so we end our movie in rockford's trailer laura sue is packing up her stuff uh she says that maybe she should worry about being a good actress instead of being famous yeah her character arc right has now come to this end point um, and then Jim Jim sits her down to have this quick heart to heart. I I forget all the he says a couple things and finishes up with if I had a daughter I'd want her to yeah. be a lot like you. Yeah. And then gives her a tender kiss on the forehead. And then we freeze frame on James Garner's wonderful smile yes. as he has had a familial breakthrough with uh, Laura Sue, who has found a friend. Good good on Jim. Good on Laura Sue. Uh yeah. So overall thoughts, I mean, we talked a little bit about it in the beginning, Mm. but uh, now that we've gone through it again. Yeah, I kind of want to watch it. Like, I kind of want to let this sit and maybe watch it again down the line, not for the show. I feel like I would probably like it better if I wasn't pausing and taking notes. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think that broke up the already kind of weird pacing for me Uh, because I kind of came away being like, eh, that was fine. Yeah, yeah. So I, I'm trying to, as I watch them, put them in the, the mind frame of someone who hasn't seen a Rockford file in 20 years. Right. And I want to just live with the characters a little bit more. Certainly when it comes to Jim and Angel, we get that. This is not only a lot of fun Jim Angel stuff, but also the Angel scam to end all angels. Right. <laughs> yeah. On that level, uh, I think that this this episode does a really good job. But like I said in the beginning, the tightness isn't quite there because I don't think they have the constraint mm-hmm. uh, to help them out. So they, they kind of pad certain things and things only do single duty rather than double or right. triple duty like they usually do. It feels kind of weird because it's like it's a canal script, right? So I wonder if it's something of like the muscle memory for the hour show. Yeah. Were what drove this script, but it actually needed some like a different set of 
you yeah. know, skills. Yeah, he wrote one other and then co-wrote the last movie. So maybe we'll see yeah. how they stack up against each other. Um, I feel like I'm probably a little unfairly down on this. Sure. Like you're saying, I think if you'd watch this with the big gap, you'd be so swept away by like seeing Jim and Angel do their thing that that would carry it. And like there's a couple excerpts of reviews in 30 Years of the Rockford Files for this from from TV critics with stuff like, the movie is so whimsical, it's almost weightless. Huh. The new Rockford Files movie with a sparkling script by Stephen J. Cannell and a chunky performance by Stuart Margolin as Angel Martin. I feel like maybe at the time it read with more yeah. wit and humor than I see in it. Yeah, I'm uh, enjoying the exploration into these uh, movies, but I I think so far they they feel slightly more like victory laps than actual yeah. like hard fought innings i'll take that yeah because like the first one had kind of the weird construction like Mm -hmm. with all the time gaps and stuff which worked for the overall idea of it but made the story kind of complicated in a way it didn't have to be while this one the story is actually very straightforward but it didn't really have as much of the other things to keep the straightforward story interesting as yeah there are in the best rockford files episodes that have straightforward stories I mean, I liked watching it. I would watch it again. I would mm-hmm. be able to get absorbed into uh, Angel more, I think, would be a big part of it. And there are individual scenes that really gave me the Rockford vibe that I really liked. But yeah, yeah. overall, I'm still kind of like after the first one, I'm like waiting for the good movie <laughs> still. <laughs> yeah, I am. I'm a little bit there, too. Like, I think that so clearly Jim is still magnificent in the role. Yes. (laughs) You know, like an angel is still great in the role. Dennis, I still love Dennis in the role. Like, so it's not like, it's not like this kind of thing where you're looking at and you see people phoning it in or anything like that. Right. The context is just a lot to overcome. I think. Yeah. Especially for us, since we're so immersed in the seventies version, but yeah, I enjoyed watching it. I mean, if you like angel, you should watch this movie. Oh yeah. Like this is (laughs) old angel doing a preacher thing is. Yeah. (laughs) beautiful it is as far as his money is concerned i think he came out all right i assume she paid him it seems like she's okay for money at the end maybe i mean he does say she doesn't owe him anything so like maybe he wouldn't accept her money but it's not like he's out money other than the firebird yeah the firebird you know and then that coffee and the pastries (laughs) but maybe he's just happy that it led to him getting back all the stuff that Angel stole from him. That's true. <laughs> and that's significant. There's a lot of leather bags in addition yeah. to that coat. Yeah. Well, whether Jim Rockford made any money or not, I think we have earned our $295 <laughs> for today. Thanks for joining us to talk about this movie. Yeah. We will be back next time to talk about another TV episode of The Rockford Files. <laughs>